My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the rise and the fall of the middle class through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Boulder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the rise and the fall of the middle class? Hello, Dario. The middle class is a fundamental pillar of the West, for better and for worse. Uh, it, the rise of the middle class, the expansion of the middle class, led to the West as we know it today in 2023. And unfortunately, uh, the current decrease in middle-class power and even in middle-class numbers is a significant threat to uh, the Western self-image, the, the Western model as it has been shaped over these past centuries. And so um, it is interesting to understand the role of the middle-class in the growth of the West and the Western bubble that's associated with it, but it's all absolutely fundamental to understand the dangers that are associated with the threat that the middle class is um, suffering from at the moment. And what are the facts? The middle class is a socioeconomic group in society that generally includes individuals and families who have a moderate level of income, education and wealth. In general, the middle class is characterized by having a comfortable living standard with sufficient income to afford basic necessities such as housing, healthcare, education and transportation, as well as some disposable income for things like travel and entertainment. Members of the middle class may also have some degree of financial security, such as savings for emergencies or retirement. The middle class is often considered to be the backbone of the economy, as they typically have the purchasing power to support businesses and drive economic growth. In many societies, the middle class is also seen as a stabilizing force as they are often politically moderate and invested in maintaining social order and stability. What is the bubble? I want to start this episode uh, by directly asking something about the, uh, the fact sheet. Um, because I, uh, so whenever I write these fact sheets, uh, I try to only include facts and not too much analysis already because that's what we want to do in these episodes. Why does the middle class want to maintain social stability and order? The key characteristic of the middle class is that you've got something to lose from a collapse of society. If you um, have a shop, you're a shop owner, or you're a doctor, or you are an academic at a university, it is very likely that you've got uh, a long trajectory of being educated to prepare yourself for your profession. You will likely have a mortgaged house um, and you have a family, you want to send your children to a good school. You have things to lose and you need to work um, to keep that level of welfare. You're not the upper class. You can't just lay back and say, okay, whatever I do, I'll be fine economically. You have to work for it. And you cannot afford the instability of revolution which is something that for example would be less of an issue if you're 
desperately poor or if you're working class and you feel that the system goes against you, you have invested your time and effort and your money into a stable lifestyle within a society that more or less works for you. And the result is that you need that order, you need that stability to continue. Otherwise, you lose all your, you know, all the good things that you've created for yourself. Exactly. So this is different from the working class, which we would define as everyone who's not part of the middle class and basically economically below them, right? Yes. And here we have to be a bit careful because the working class in the 19th century is not the same as the working class in 2023. Um, look, in the 19th century, the working class typically was undereducated, um, had very little to go on, had to hope to survive every week or every month. Of course, the working class in 2023 doesn't fall within that category. The working class is typically well-educated, uh, maybe not at the same level as, for example, the academic university level of the middle class, but well-educated, has uh, free time as well, has often some savings. So in that sense, there is a bit of a gray area about which kind of working class we're talking about. But typically, if you're the working class, you're at the economic bottom of society you don't have the savings and the investment in society that the middle class would have. And therefore, you have less to lose from revolution, from rebellion. You have less to lose from uncertainty because your life is already uncertain. You already are not completely uh, comfortable with your retirement because you don't know how you will retire. You don't know if you can still live in your house when you retire. So you already face uncertainty in the current system and therefore... Any dynamics that would undermine stability around you are not as important to you and might even open opportunities for improving your life, improving um, your standards of living. And therefore, there's a big gap between the way the working class would look at issues such as political instability, rebellion, revolution, and the middle class that is desperate to hang on to what they've got. And there's another key difference that results out of this difference in economic stability. So while the working class thinks more from maybe day to day or week to week, the middle class has the financial stability to think about political participation as well. So they have a lot more political power than the working class. Yes, they and, and how this typically works is not that they know... Um, people within the governments, that's more for the upper classes, but how it works is that they will participate in some political debates um, in the you know, town hall. They will maybe donate some money to the local political party. Maybe they will do some canvassing when there are elections. They are part of that system uh, that is the key of certainly Western democracy, where you want where you want to be attached to the system around you, you want to influence the system, and you feel that you have this inherent uh, relationship with the system around you. You feel that you work for the system and the system works for you. And it is a fair, balanced situation. Unlike, again, the working class, where you don't really feel that you want to work for the system at all, and you feel that the system oppresses you. And if we compare this... Uh, middle class situation now to the upper class. So the upper class obviously has a lot more power um, to influence political decision making. They know politicians, they have a lot more money to donate to political parties. Uh, however, they share different ideas of what society would look like. So they have different convictions. 
Yes, and again, there's this gray area. Not everyone in the middle class and not everyone in the upper class followed this pattern. But uh, the moment that you are at the top of the economic ladder of society is the moment that you feel a certain entitlement with respect to the system doing exactly your bidding. Not simply you putting work into the system and the system giving back to you. That's the middle class dynamic. But rather hey, I'm here now, I, I have these enormous investments, I am giving money to these politicians, therefore I deserve something serious in return, and the system needs to be shaped according to my own personal agenda. And therefore, that is a very different kind of situation than the middle class that can only shape the agenda as a group, that at an individual level, canvassing is a little bit or providing some donations to some political party won't do much. But if you organize yourself as a group of the middle class, then um, that will that will work and you can actually defend a certain agenda. But it requires that back and forth of you as a society, understanding that you're all in it together. Whereas the upper class are much more individualistic, much more about their own personal agenda and convictions being defended by the system. And this is the reason why generally society approves of the working class growing and why i mean we've pointed to this in past episodes why the west has been so successful over the past few hundred years because that working class continuously expanded and increased stabilizing society and also creating you know a, a certain balance you want to uh, overthrow the system you go with the working class, you want to improve and stabilize the system, you go with the middle class, and you want to manipulate the system, you go with the upper class. And so that if you like the system that you've got, if you like the direction of your society, the middle class is the way to go. The middle class is the way to provide a basic foundation for further improvement, for further strengthening of the status quo, right? And... That is exactly what you've seen over the past 200 years or so. Most of human history has been one in which there has been a very small middle class, a relatively small but incredibly powerful upper class, and most people belong to the working class and the poor classes. That is most of human history. But over the past centuries, this has changed. And especially in the West, you see that enormous expansion of the middle class because of the Industrial Revolution that has then this vicious circle or virtuous circle actually because it's i think we can all agree that's probably a good thing between um the expansion of individual political rights of people within a previously very hierarchical society in order to defend the interests of the working class or the the, the classic example here is property rights uh, a really big deal for the middle class. Once they've established that they've got their house and they've got their shop or they've got their education, they want to make sure that the government cannot take that away from them. And so you, you see this expansion of the middle class being accompanied by an expansion of the basic rights and basic um, responsibilities within society that now make up the West. And the result of that is a society that has grown in many many ways it has benefited the poor um, because the poor are being transferred into the middle class and even when they're not transferred into the middle class there are now social structures that support them and um, you've got a middle class that is 
economically and socially and psychologically doing better and better and better. And you've got an upper class that even though they might have lost power in terms of politics, their lifestyle and their well-being has actually improved thanks to this because they don't have to worry about revolution. They don't have to worry about um, political instability or continuously fighting for their legitimacy versus the masses. The masses are kind of okay with them because they are now seen as part of a legitimate, well-functioning system. Uh, a great expression I've, I've once heard on how to best summarize this is you can always measure the stability and the well-doing of society by the height of the fences of the middle class or of the upper class. So if you, whenever you visit a country and there's very high fences or even walls uh, to mark your property, um, well, you, there's a reason why these people feel they need it, they need to protect themselves. And at the, on the other hand, if you then go into countries where, and I think uh, the United States is very exemplary of this, where you at first you have a few meters of lawn, you know, and there's no, no fence whatsoever, and then your house begins and then there's maybe a fence in the background. That's an expression of, hey, there's a lot of stability here and nobody is threatening me. I also have a gun on the back of the house. But I, I think that's a very good expression to summarize all of this. That's an absolutely perfect way to look at it because um, this is exactly how you can observe the historical dynamics over the past hundred years or so. So in Europe, uh, the fences came down. The United States initially never had the fences. So Europe very much had the fences. They've been taken down by this expansion of middle class, sort of creating a comfort level for everyone. Um, certain regions, such as, for example, Latin America, never found that that middle grounds never found that comfort level. So what you see is that Latin American upper classes, but also middle classes in some ways are very used to those fences, are very used to gated communities and that kind of thing. But now in the 21st century, the fences are back in Europe. And for the first time, they're there in the United States, going very much against the whole point of what the United States and modern day Europe wants to achieve. A personal observation here. Um, and I hope that at some point the science will back me up on this, is the increase in security personnel. Is This is something that uh, has happened in the last few years, that suddenly stores feel the need to hire security personnel. Um, events need to feel the need that they need to hire security personnel. And I mean, the extreme version of this you, you currently see in the United States, uh, in certain states where suddenly a lot of people from the working class raid these stores, run in, grab everything they can grab and run back out. And I think that this is exactly what you just said. You know, you see these fences going up and security personnel being being stationed. And you can look at this statically in the sense of right now, it means today that uh, shopkeepers and many other actors within society feel unsafe, feel unprotected. Uh, dynamically, over the longer term, you can look at it. What is happening here? It is a decreasing role and a decreasing faith in the government, where in in the state as a organization, as a uh, method to ensure stability and safety for all, and though that security personnel and those gated communities, those fences that we just mentioned mean that we as a society no longer believe that we can rely on the state. We can no longer rely on the institutions that were built up with so much effort by a middle class that wanted to protect itself. And what do you get if it becomes an inc if, if there's an increase in 
security personnel, then you get a shift in power away from the state, which means away from the middle class, away from the lower classes, towards the upper classes. Given that we're talking about what's the bubble here, uh, then so we've now described you know this phenomenon that we're currently observing. But why is it the middle class's fault? What did they do um, for society to, to end up where we're at right now? Well, maybe this is a, a good moment first, because I realized that we mentioned the word class a lot. And, um, you know, this is a oversimplified analysis, right? Because like we said in the beginning, classes are not very easily definable. This is not necessarily some kind of Marxist discourse, even though Marx has an awful lot of interesting things to say. Uh, it is more trying to simplify the broad dynamics. I just want to make that clear for uh, for the listeners. Um, the issue with the middle class here is that when things went well, when they started building up things, and we're talking about the Western middle class here in the 19th century, uh, they did so out of a benign self-interest, if you like. They wanted to protect what they had individually, but they had to band together as a group to get there. And so they pushed for political reform, they pushed for specific legislation in order to make sure that they could actually uh, ensure their own safety, their own um, long-term economic prospects, etc. That was done without a concerted agenda. There was no leader that said, we, the middle class, need to establish this. It happened over time naturally. And by the way, there is a lot of positive things to say about this interaction between, if you like, that liberalism and that capitalism that you see in the 19th century and 20th century. We're very critical of the West in our podcast, but um, there is something very elegant about that, about a middle class that by looking at their own lives, they push for a better system that works for everyone. That's pretty. That's beautiful. That's a nice, good thing to observe. But the middle class was never really aware of that. You had some intellectuals that observed it, that wrote about it. Um, you had some political debates about it, but the force that drove this positive impact was a force that was unguided by anyone in particular. And so the middle class wasn't really aware of what they were doing. They were just doing it for themselves and they weren't aware that this was actually helping their country, their, their nation, their state in the long run. And similarly to that, you see now in the 21st century that the middle class doesn't really feel accountable or responsible for this situation. So in the 21st century, you see the middle class being under pressure, in some cases decreasing, but certainly not growing anymore. You see an upper class that is growing and slowly you see a, a working class that is also growing. Um, and that middle class looks at it and gets frustrated, is annoyed, but they don't understand their own responsibility and their own accountability in this because they never were made aware of that. They just followed their own personal agenda and banded together in order to get to, to whatever they wanted to achieve. And the result now is that a middle class that has done an awful lot of good for Western society that really took Western society onto a path of improvement and and increased well-being, is now a middle class that feels helpless, even though they are the key to strengthening um, these dynamics again and, and, and turning it around. So as you said, the, like none of this ever happened explicitly. And I mean, this is a, a general theme of this podcast, that there's not some evil overlord 
or that there's not this middle class family sitting over the dinner table and planning how to take down society and how to destroy the middle class. Uh, so there's this, you know, unconscious process happening. But let's make this a bit more concrete for the listener. What's something where we can pin the middle class down and basically say, here you're messing up because not because you're evil, but because you're not aware of the importance of this process. I mean, can we see this in the voting patterns, for example? Very clearly. So you've got voting patterns in the 19th and 20th century where the middle class votes to protect the care things that they care about. They they vote to protect property rights, as I mentioned before. They vote to protect certain moral values, right? I mean, if you like, the more business-minded middle class would vote right of center, which would ensure property rights. The more morally driven middle class, left of center, if you like, the salon socialists, um, they would uh, vote to have um, child labor abolished. And, and they would have very clear things that they cared about and they would band together in order to achieve those political goals. And altogether, as from a bigger picture, that led to this enormous increase in well-being in Western society, economically, but also culturally, socially, etc. Yet now, in the 21st century, it seems as if the middle class seems to take for granted that those values that they worked so hard for over the past 200 years are going to be there, that no one is going to take away their property, that no one is going to reintroduce child labor. And as a result, they have this weird cognitive dissonance, this disconnect between what they see politically and how they feel emotionally and how those two relate. So they get increasingly frustrated because they feel something is wrong. There's no doubt that people in the 21st century are more anxious less secure of how the what the future is going to look like how life is uh, moving along than before so they feel this anxiety but they also take for granted certain basic issues so they don't vote in order to protect those basic values that they so want to protect they lash out politically by voting for for example populist parties and populist parties are exactly the wrong answer because what do populist parties do they endanger property rights. They endanger issues such as child labor. I, I, I don't think there's any political party advocating child labor, but you get the point. They, they, they uh, endanger basic moral values that the middle class holds high. And the middle class does that because they do not understand or they, they do not perceive the connection between their own responsibility and things going wrong. And they just want to scream at the political elites, if you like, what are you doing? Why why are you messing up? Here I'm going to vote for this 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 populist leader in order to send you a message that you have to get your act together because I believe you're corrupt. Instead, what they should be doing is saying, "Hey, you know what? How can I actually connect to the system once again at a local individual level and actually ensure that my the basic values that I care about so much will be protected and will be expanded?" I think I could give a, pos a personal example that I, I've given before, um, especially about my generation. And now I'm specifically talking about Europeans, EU Europeans, uh, because the example I gave here was about the Schengen Agreement. You know, the free movement of people within the European Union and the fact that if I have to show my passport, if I cross from Germany to France, I'm offended because who, how dare you ask for my passport? Um, I'm a European citizen. And so you have this... I mean, for example, your generation, 
didn't have, didn't grow up with that. So for you, it's a, it's a different value. But at the same time, let's take uh, the issue of drug trafficking. Um, so then there's, uh, there's concern, oh, drugs are freely traveling across borders and this must be stopped because they have a negative harm on society. Mm, the parties of the center are not strict enough of this. Okay, let's vote for a, let's say, right-wing populist party that is going to, that is promising to crack down on drug trafficking. And well, how are they going to do this? By closing the borders. Um, so now this is something that, you know, I personally cared about because I perceived the problem, but I voted against my own personal interest. And now I have to endure traffic and uh, well, traffic and, uh, and border stops again. Exactly. And why that in the past was not a problem for long-term evolution and development of society was that in the past, those people the, still had to establish the basic needs and the basic... And so people would they, they would understand they came from a lesser background. The history was worse than the future. And as a result, they knew what they were working towards. But now people don't know what they're working towards anymore. It sort of feels like, hey, we're there. And as a result, we don't have that natural drive to actually take that personal accountability and responsibility. And this dynamic can also be applied to foreign policy. Absolutely. The, this is very visible in the way that um, the middle class watches CNN or whatever YouTube nowadays, uh, however they perceive foreign policy. So foreign policy in the Western liberal model is a policy that very much corresponds to the middle class. Um, it corresponds to what the middle class wants to achieve. Um, with that, I mean that politicians, they will engage in foreign policy projects if um, that somehow allows them to be responsive to their voters, to their electorates, if um, that somehow protects the economic interests of the electorate. Things such as, um, uh, you know, um, oil oil policy when it comes to maintaining relations in the Middle East are very much driven by the needs of that middle class. Sometimes people like to think that it's in some kind of economic elite messing up um, everyone else's agenda, but that's not actually the case. In the, in the Western model, politics typically responds to middle class needs. In the past, there was this dynamic positive attitude of how can we improve our relationship with the world? How can we improve on our failures of the past? Um, how can we learn from our mistakes when it comes to colonization, when it comes to warfare, when it comes to all those things? Now fast forward to the 21st century and you've got a middle class that is no longer really asking those questions. What do I want from foreign policy? And they let, therefore, foreign policy leaders get away with what they do and they don't feel that they have any stake in it they don't feel that they have any responsibility for it so take my favorite topic um, the war in iraq in 2003 the middle class watched that and a lot of people in europe and in the united states were against it felt uncomfortable with it but it was almost like a show that they watch on TV. It had nothing to do with their own agenda. It had nothing to do with their own voting patterns. How do I know that? Well, because after the war in Iraq, George W. Bush and Tony Blair were once again elected into office by a middle class that didn't feel that they had to be held accountable for the foreign policy done by um, political leaders. And so once again, you see a middle class that is 
basically asleep when it comes to their responsibility and their influence on foreign policy. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And this can be extremely damaging. Um, and an example, you already mentioned uh, the Iraq war. I mean, we've recorded an entire episode on this, but we can also witness this right now during the war in Ukraine, where there's a lot of emotional feelings uh, involved within especially European societies uh, towards, you know, the first war on the European continent for 70 something years. If you don't take into account uh, the war in the Balkans, and so suddenly you had a middle class feeling threatened again, you know, and with this lashing out where, especially here in Germany, um, you suddenly had a country that, you know, there's a lot of parties, a lot of people who pride themselves in being pacifist, who turned into the other extreme, uh, basically wanting to march towards Moscow. It- this for me in already happened with Libya in the Netherlands uh, in the Dutch politics when the Green Party in the Netherlands uh, in 2011 was okay with the overthrow of Gaddafi using military means to overthrow Gaddafi in Libya. And the moment that happened, I thought, well, how if if the Green Party is okay with that, where what is happening to the world? I want the Green Party to be pacifist. I wouldn't necessarily label myself pacifist, but you need to have at least that kind of connection right and it shows how these 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 dynamics uh these social dynamics take replace a sense of responsibility and a sense of purpose the state works for me and i want the state and especially the governments to do what uh, needs to be done in order for me to achieve my agenda to a situation where people just get swapped swept up in large kind of populist movements um, believing that uh, you know what matters is that we all feel good about ourselves and feel feel like we're on the right side of history and therefore if the government takes action against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine or against Libya because Gaddafi is an evil dictator according to that narrative then um, we're okay with that we detach our own agenda from those actions. So you have emotional flows we, we feeling threatened, um, and then we take comfort in aggressive foreign policy. And another example is the war on terror. The war on terror was a perfect example of this, because the war on terror, obviously, if we look back on it 20 years later, roughly, has been incredibly damaging to the middle class in the West. It has been even more damaging to the people in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. But but to the West, the war on terror has been a terrible, terrible project based on a statistically negligible threat. The number of people that were killed, murdered by terrorists can be counted in with three uh, digits. It's in the hundreds, not in the thousands. Now, that is that is bad. Every victim of terrorism is bad, but it wasn't a existential threat to the middle class in the West. Loads of threats exist for the for the middle class, but terrorism wasn't one of them. And yet we went with this flow. We felt scared. We felt uneasy with where the world was going. We thought that the 21st century was all going to be peaceful and all going to be this Western Fukuyama-esque um, approach. Everyone was going to be liberal. Everyone was going to be capitalist. And we were all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And that didn't turn out to be the case. We feel scared. We feel afraid. And we 
allow a foreign policy to go directly against our own interests. And so the middle class, once again, doesn't stand up for its own agenda. Because it's not only foreign policy that was a disaster as a result of this, but you also have security checks at the airport now, um, which, I mean, that's, you know, that's a small detail. But you also have things such as the Patriot Act, which suddenly allows uh, the government to spy on you, the middle class. Exactly, because this is a weird psychological combination of kind of taking for granted that everything will be fine because we feel that we no longer need to work really hard to establish a utopian society because we're almost there and then letting it actually go into the other direction because of our emotional state of mind. So we no longer have a practical agenda. We've got an emotional agenda, being fearful of terrorism, and we kind of let the government and the sort of the, the political and economic leadership take steps that directly hurt the basic values that the middle class should stand for. The Patriot Act, but all these other issues. You mentioned airplanes and security checks, um, not being able to take uh, water bottles with you into the airplane. Those are minimal things, but altogether it becomes a pretty big and scary picture. Then think about the enormous tax burden that the war on terror has um, put on the middle class. The literally trillions and trillions of dollars that were spent on fighting ghosts around the world and messing up local communities around the world. This had absolutely no relationship with middle-class well-being, but the middle-class kind of let it happen because they're sleepwalking towards this future where, they're no longer, where they no longer exist. Let's move from the foreign policy level to the domestic level. Um, I already mentioned uh, the Patriot Act uh, having real consequences for you at home. Um, and another crisis, another big event where we saw this happening, um, and particularly the power of the middle class as well, you know, the fear of the middle class um, and the influence it has over politics. Uh, we saw this during COVID when people, and we recorded a full episode on this, um, but let's well, let's talk about it one more time because that dynamic is so important, where you had people being very, fell feeling very threatened at home in their big, nice houses, with a nice garden, with a secure job, and saying yes, let's, saying yes to the lockdown, basically, uh, because it didn't affect them that much. However, to the damage of then the working class in particular here, and we, here we use the example of a family of six living in a two-bedroom apartment who cannot work from home because they work as a cashier at the supermarket, um, or they simply have to, have to go out. So this is a really interesting contrast with the war on terror in that sense that the middle class with the war on terror wasn't actually in any statistical way threatened. Of course, COVID was a threat in some ways because millions of people died because of uh, the virus. However, still, statistically, um, it was blown out of all proportions based on the horrible, horrific images of hospitals being all crowded and doctors not having enough equipment and not enough personnel to deal with it. So there was a real problem for the middle class, unlike the war on terror. Um, but that turned the middle class and that fear of the middle class turned them predatory towards the working class, predatory towards the poor in society. Because the poor in society... For them, COVID was just another issue that they had to deal with. It was just another problem out of a thousand problems that they face on a daily basis. But the middle class had this problem that they hadn't experienced before. They felt threatened. They felt um, that, that they could die anytime because of this scary virus. 
And as a result, they no longer cared about the basic fundamental properties of a well-functioning middle-class-run society. And they went after the working class. They said, we're going to take action that hurts the working class in order to defend ourselves. We're going to basically bend the rules of the system. Exactly the thing that for 200 years we've been fighting against. We wanted to have a fair playing field so that we in our lives and our property would be protected. Now we're going to break that level playing field. And we're going to say, I want to be safe from this virus. Um, those on the bottom, at the bottom level of society, well, tough for them. Um, those children that are going to suffer psychologically, tough for them. I don't want to die. And so this was a very extreme case of the middle class no longer being in touch with what they, what kind of society they want to establish and just emotionally reacting to an increasing threat in the world, an increasing world that, uh, sorry, a world that increasingly no longer protects their interests and you know this is this is typical of humanity right once you're afraid once you're fearful you forget about the long-term principles and the long-term foundations of what you should care about you said that they went after the lower class uh, very much in the short run however all of these decisions and also a lot of the foreign policy decisions that the, the middle class basically drove politicians towards are very much hurting the middle class now. So we talked about the trillions of US dollars spent on the war on terror, um, the uh, well billions or trillions of, uh, of dollars and euros uh, spent on lockdown measures and also the impact of that. You kind of see the response, um, well, or the economic outfall of, of the middle class pushing for more aggressive policies on Russia, now more talk about energy prices. A lot of this also driving inflation and now really eating up the middle class because the middle class is declining. I mean, in size and economically overall. Yes, well, at, at a very minimum, um, it depends on which country you look at from a Western perspective. But at a minimum, in I would safely say in all Western countries, the middle class has stagnated. That's at the, at the, at the, at the basic level. They have not, the middle class has not grown and their income, despite, despite the society around them growing their GDP, right? So countries like Spain or like the Netherlands or like the United States, over the past 20 years, they've become richer as a country, as a whole. Significant GDP growth, significant wealth growth, but none of that has gone to the middle class. And in many situations, and again, here the, the United States is the, the most obvious example, the middle class has actually been shrinking actively. And it's not just shrinking actively economically, but also in terms of political clout, in terms of basic protections. So the middle class is failing to defend its own agenda in this sense. And that's very, very, very clear. Um, and this becomes an absolutely a vicious circle because the middle class notices that they don't understand their accountability and responsibility for this. Their voting patterns become more and more extreme. They become predatory towards the working class. The working class then starts resisting and you see these rebellious movements popping up. Once again, increasing the threat to the middle class. And the only ones that in the short term seem to be growing in terms of power and wealth are the upper class. But that's also a relatively short-term phenomenon because at some point everyone will suffer, just like everyone benefited from that expansion of the middle class 100 and 200 years ago. 
and another damage it's it's not so much a a tangible real life damage but the fact that there's no pushback from the middle class against this development no because they're not aware for the reasons mentioned before of their responsibility and um, they feel powerless they feel that it's not up to them they are less engaged with um, politics than before, with society than before. Uh, what's very interesting is that when people are on a downward spiral, they no longer are as rational as they used to be before, right? So they, they be, you become more, when, when, when things are going badly, you become more emotional because you've got more at stake. You no longer look positively towards the future. You no longer try to improve things, but you desperately try to keep things for you. Another interesting example here would be, for example, the way the middle class is terrified of immigration, whereas every expert in demographics would tell you that we need young people to come into Europe because otherwise the middle class uh, will have a really big problem when they retire. Um, they no longer rationally assess the situation. They don't push back because they simply do not feel that those dynamics are part of their day-to-day decision-making. They feel things are going wrong because outsiders, the elites, however you want to define them, are somehow messing things up. Instead, what they should be saying is, okay, uh, what is my responsibility in all of this? And how can I actually provide a positive um, addition? How can I provide value to the world around me? And what now? When we're looking into the future, all of this sounds very dark. Um, there's not a lot of hope that we're giving in this episode. Uh, so, so what does the future look like for the middle class, but also for the working class and the upper class? Well... So the, the darkest scenario is pretty dark, right? As, as we said before in, 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 our, in, in our podcast, there is no guarantee that liberal democracy is going to survive history. There's no guarantee that 100 years from now, we still have anything that we would call a welfare state or that we would call liberal and democratic or anything like that. So it's perfectly all right and, and also important to sort of be negative in, in that sense. However, when you look at the positive steps that can be taken, it is about um, looking at where you as an individual actually contribute to the surroundings. Because the middle class still is powerful, despite the decline, despite the, the end of the expansion of the middle class, and despite the growing upper class, the middle class still have an awful lot of influence if they use that influence responsibly. And maybe there's one interesting issue there that I would very much encourage um, the world to work towards, is that what you see with the, these, these dynamics that we've described over the past 25 years or so, or 30 years, is that you see a increasing conflation of state and government. And what I mean with that is that the middle class looks at the political and state machine that rules them and says they are one and the same. Government and politic, uh, politics and the state go hand in hand. But one of the major achievements of the middle class in the past was to say we can have political parties, we can have political debates, but whatever happens, there needs to be a neutral state mechanism providing basic rights 
and liberties and, 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 and services to us as a middle class. So there needs to be an independent judiciary. There needs to be a um, independent civil service that just fulfills their basic obligations when it comes to tax revenue, when it comes to uh, improving roads. And that should be detached from the political debate. So maybe one of the steps forward towards the future here would be to say, can we please go back to understanding that? Can we please acknowledge that the political debate is separate from strengthening the state and strengthening the mechanisms that keep society fair and balanced? This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the rise and fall of the middle class. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Well, maybe given these foundational conversations we had, it would be good to quote one of the founders of liberal democracy uh, thousands of years ago, Aristotle, who said, the most perfect political community is one in which the middle class is in control and outnumbers both of the other classes. Thank you.